All right, you ready for this story? Jesus has, uh, at this point in, in Mark's gospel, has started to become well known for his preaching, for his activism, and for his gathering of crowds. And if you're a despot, as we see anywhere around the world at the moment, uh, Haiti would be a really good example of the, it's a problem if a crowd gathers. So King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. Another said, it is a prophet like the one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. She could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask him for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back into the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved. Yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word, for the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. What a horrible story. And why is it here? Well, obviously, one of the reasons is that John's life foreshadows Jesus' life. It's an interesting thing at the end where John is taken by his disciples, his body, and laid in a tomb. The, the very thing, thing that the disciples of Jesus didn't do, that they ran away. But there's so many links, uh, an unjust killing, 
by a despot, Herod, Pilate, and the chief priests. So there's certainly one of the reasons why it's here. And it's written to a community under great threat of persecution and death themselves. There's something else going on here too that Remember, we talked about John last week as being a prophet and that a prophet's job is to tell the truth about what's going on. And the prophets of old told the truth. When the people of Israel said, we want a king, everyone else has got a king, that seems to be the best way to us to run our, 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 country, our country, our nation. And we need a king. And the prophet said, no, you don't. The prophet said this, that a king will... Uh, enslave your children putting the men into armies and the women into harems that, that, that kings will just do what they want to do regardless of anyone it's a really bad way to do things no we want a king they said they got one and then another one and another one and most of them were exactly as the prophets foretold in fact towards the end of the, this period a couple of hundred years later or, or possibly more it's hard to know one of the prophets said oh you shepherds of Israel which is the name always given to kings shepherds not only in Israel but all through the Middle East you've been feeding yourselves should not shepherds feed the sheep you eat the fat you clothe yourselves with the wool you slaughter the fatling but you do not feed the sheep You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost, but with force and harshness you have ruled them. No wonder the rulers didn't like the prophets. Nobody wants to hear that because it's true. And this is what's happening in John. John is this kind of prophet. And Herod is this kind of ruler. Even though prophets don't predict the future, if they tell the truth about the present, they can tell you what's likely to happen if we don't change. We talked last week about climate science. This is what you can expect, and this is what happens. Herod is a terribly weak man. He feared John, but he wanted to listen to him. He was greatly perplexed, this text says, or he was totally confused, another, another uh, translation has it. He's worried all the time about who's really thinking about him and who isn't and what are they thinking. He is worried about what women will say. In a culture of male dominance, the idea that you would need to worry about what your wife or your daughter or stepdaughter, we don't know quite which, what difference does it make what they say? I'm the king. He's worried about what his guests will do, so he makes them crazy oath because he's probably drunk or at least drunk on power and then he's worried that if he doesn't fulfill that oath what will the guests think of him he's worried all the time about not being a real Israelite which is one of the great themes of the Herodian family they were sort of um, they were kind of half Israelites and half not and one of the reasons people say that Herod, this Herod's father started to build a massive temple was in order to demonstrate how faithful he was to Jewish culture and to Jewish law and to Jewish religion. And they were always um, sensitive to this idea that he's not a real Israelite. And here's John saying, if you do this, you're breaking the law. If you marry your brother's wife, you're breaking the law. He's sensitive to all of that. All the time he's looking around worried. It's a terrible story. 
One of the reasons this text is here is, I think, to demonstrate what life ought to be like. Because the reading we get straight after this, which we won't deal with next week, but the week after, and we'll do, deal with it from another gospel, don't ask me, that's the lectionary writers, is the feeding of the 5,000. There's a lot of commonality. First of all, before this reading, Jesus sends out his disciples and he says to them, that to, he sends them out to cast out many demons, anoint with oil many who were sick and cure them. In this reading, Herod does the same thing. He sends people out. They're using exactly the same word. Mark is using the same word in both bits. He sends people out too. But he sends people out for murder and death. Jesus sends out his community, his family, to build the world. Herod, in the way of despots, sends out employees to take care of things so he doesn't have to sully himself. Jesus sends out people to bring life. Herod sends out people to bring death. And then there's this idea of the Feast of the 5,000. There's two feasts. Herod has a feast for the rich and powerful, the people he's trying to keep on his side, the people he's trying to manipulate, people he's trying to stay in the good books of. And he needs to because not long after this, he falls apart. One of his brothers has already fallen apart and Rome has come in and ruled the area directly. That's why we get the governors. That's why we get Pilate in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' arrest and death. So these guys are flaky all the way along. So he needs to keep these people on side. So here's a feast for the rich and the powerful. In a few minutes, if we were reading the gospel straight through, in a few minutes we read a story about a feast for everyone. How much food is there? Well, there's a lot of food at a feast. How much food is there at Jesus' feast? An overabundance, a ridiculous story about food when we read the, the, the story of the 5,000. It's a completely over-the-top story. Here's the juxtaposition. Which life are we going to live? Back when the Israelites said, oh, we need a king, we want to be like all the other nations, and this is what it ends up. Jesus is telling a story about a different... He calls it a kingdom because kingdom was the way that the uh, ancient Near East understood uh, the way of running the world. We, we wouldn't use that. We might use, the, uh, and some people have, the commonwealth of God. What, what we really mean by the words commonwealth, the commonwealth of Australia, the commonwealth of God, the coming together of all things, the invitation to everyone to belong... We might call it the, the community of God, this, the world of God. There's lots of different ways that we might use other than the word kingdom. But Jesus is definitely, or Mark, I'm sorry, the writer of Mark's Gospel, is definitely contrasting these two things. The feast of death and despair and the feast of life. But I think there's something else that we can take from this too. Because you look at Herod. We think he has ultimate power. Now he doesn't. He's actually called a king, but he's not a king. He's a tetrarch. It's a, it's a, he's a client king, if you like. He's sort of a sub-king uh, within the Roman Empire. He doesn't actually have a kingdom to give away. He is a braggart. Um, and we've seen a few of those recently, haven't we? Uh, and he's, so he can't really give away half his kingdom because it's not his to give. But here's a man in turmoil. 
his power is dissipated. He's worried about what women will say. He's worried about what his guests will say. He's worried about what John says, who keeps criticising him. Everyone else has the power and he doesn't. John had it. Then Herodias had it. Then his his or her daughter or, or both of their daughter, also possibly called Herodias, had it. Then the crowd have it. Herod's life is dissipated. It's spread all over the place. And it's not something that we're unfamiliar with. We're quite... Our power, our sense of ourselves can dissipate so quickly. We should be so concerned about what other people think of us. So concerned about where we fit in our culture. We're so concerned that we don't look too unique, even though we are. We want to be sort of belonging. We want to make sure that we fit with the norm of our gender or of our ethnicity or of our age and we kind of accept it. Old people are like this. Young people are like this. It only takes a moment of thought to realise it's complete nonsense. It wasn't more than a 100 years ago that people like me who were left-handed had all kinds of things said about them. 300 years ago, they were seen as, left-handedness was seen as an, a, a way that the devil could get into a person. Um, now, to say somebody is left-handed and then expect us to all know what that means just seems absurd. It's like all the people with blue eyes, what can you say about all the people with blue eyes? Nothing that's of any interest. Nothing that actually makes any sense. But we, we're wrapped up in these things and, and it's as if our power dissipates too. The new world, the world that Jesus is talking about, is the world not of something in the distance, but of something that's present here now. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist said, and Jesus echoed it in the very first chapter of Mark, the kingdom of God is among us now, is come near is here present within us and through us. Different ways of translating it. And what it reminded me of is the quote that I'd never heard before until Nelson Mandela made it famous in 1994 when he made his inaugural address as the president of South Africa. I mean, one of the most extraordinary events of the 20th century. And he quoted uh, th- this quote, that, that he didn't make it, it's from Mal- Marilyn Williamson. Uh, and he said this, I'll read the whole quote because I think it, it's a great way to finish a way that we can take something from the story of Herod other than just blood and gore. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. 
It's not just in some of us. It's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. This is from a man who knew what liberation meant. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So be it.